People know where they stand. They know where they're going. They know what they could become. They know what's possible. The universe makes sense. And the Renaissance is, in part, a total fracturing of that vision. Just think about da Vinci's drawings of the Vitruvian Man or of babies in the womb. You know, this is the, the era in which the scientific method is born. In other words, God isn't yet dead, but this is the moment in which he contracts his fatal disease. Everything becomes subject to question and doubt. And in addition to his sheer genius, this is one reason why Shakespeare's plays are so interesting, and why they couldn't be more relevant to our present day. Think about the tsunami of doubt we have been living in, even just during the past decade, even just during the past year. Hi everyone, in today's recording I'll be discussing one of my favorite works of literature of all time, Hamlet by William Shakespeare. For the quote of the day, I'll cite this very, very short quote by William Hazlitt, the 19th century essayist and critic, who said, It is we who are Hamlet. And for an elaboration of what this could mean, a discussion of some of my favorite moments of the play, and other topics such as, What is Shakespeare's conception of the human? What is the cause of tragedy? Let's go right into that recording. Well, let's start at the very beginning. The first words of this play, the centerpiece of world literature, are, who's there? And I think in some ways everything that follows is an examination of this question. Who's there? A son? A wife? A lawyer? A writer? Maybe you think, I'm going to be a doctor. But then what happens when you don't get into med school? Or you think, I'm a father. But then what happens when your child dies? Or I'm a Christian. But what happens when you lose your faith? Are you an endless and ancient mansion of primordial archetypes, a la Carl Jung? It interested me to learn recently that one of the most fundamental Zen koans is, this, is the question, who am I? A question that Zen practitioners ask while meditating. So maybe you ask yourself this question and you don't see anything but change or flux. Are you what it says in your passport? Are you what your priest or rabbi or bishop tells you that you are? From what angle or vantage point do you get the true picture of yourself? Like a rainbow, which is not an object, but an experience of a certain angle of light refracted through the particular density of water vapor. It's a perception that you see from a certain vantage point. So again, from what vantage point or perspective should we stand to get the true vision of what each one of us is? The evolutionary perspective? The religious perspective? The chemical or subatomic perspective? What answer would a microscope give you to this question, who's there? Or a telescope? You could compare answers that you would get to this question from friends or acquaintances, or your child or your worst enemy. Which one of them would be right? What are you? It's obvious to most of us that the public self-image is kind of a construct, if not an outright lie. But the private self-image is also a construct, and in some ways a lie. And this is much less obvious. Hamlet by William Shakespeare's not the longest piece of world literature, but it more powerfully and more beautifully than any other text I know helps us ask this question. Who's there? So instead of walking through the play from start to finish, I want to talk about the whole play as a series of investigations posed to this question contained in the very first line. I thought that since brevity is the soul of wit, to quote Polonius, this might be a better approach. And yes, 
you understood me correctly, this is the short version of what I could say about Hamlet. I just finished teaching Hamlet. We spent three weeks on it. I don't know how many hours discussing it, 10 or 12 at least. And even in 10 or 12 hours, we had to leave most of the play undiscussed. So this recording will be a kind of abridgment of an abridgment. But let's look briefly at some of the potential answers to this question that are put under examination in this play. For example, maybe you're a ghost. Now, what do I mean? I don't mean in the sixth sense sense of this phrase. You're not literally dead, and you don't know it. But I mean, maybe like the dead King Hamlet, you have something that you need but can't get yourself, so you beg or command or exhort your child to help you. Maybe you're lonely, and you haunt them into calling you more. Or maybe you're ill and ask them to help care for you. Or maybe you're on the other end of this exchange, and it's you that are haunted by a parent. Or maybe you live in the shadow of a father's expectations. Or see today the ways in which you're haunted by that thing your mother said. Or maybe, like me, you're haunted by guilt. The guilt of letting old friends fade out of your life and become no more than ghosts in your memory. Maybe you're a king, or in any kind of public role as a teacher or CEO, or a leader of some kind, and it's your job to balance opposites, which Claudius does very well in the first scene. But this slick outer veneer of calm and balance can often come at the cost of one's own soul. Like Emerson says, we know that the rifle has its kickback, that karma is real. Or maybe you're a young woman, like Ophelia, wondering wondering if she can trust the words and actions of her romantic partner. And maybe your father sees something in him that he doesn't like, and he's forbidden you from seeing him. How can you know the person who says he loves you really loves you? Is this something that can be proven? And isn't all love, in a way, a kind of leap of faith? Maybe like Polonius, you're a person whose identity rests on reputation, pride of place in a family or a kingdom, who says to his son, to thine own self be true, but who is this self, and to which of myself should I be true? We are such a madhouse of conflicting voices and influences and impulses, so which of these inner personalities is the true one? For example, I get angry sometimes. Just the other day, my children were fighting over crackers, and (laughs) it was driving me up the wall. And I recognize this as a natural part of the human experience. And the desire or the goal to totally eradicate anger seems counterproductive, since so often we'd be setting ourselves up for failure. The kind of creature that I am in the universe, a homo sapien, subcategory paterfamilias, is a creature who will get angry when his offspring behave in certain ways. This is as natural as a goose hissing if you get too close to it. Is there a moral failing here? Not really. I'm inclined to say not really. But on the other hand, I can certainly make some progress and become less angry. So how do I know which is my true self, the self that I am or the self that I want to aspire to? Maybe you're a mother who has to watch her son suffer and grieve and grow with confusion and resentment, and even has to watch him slowly go mad. I can't help feeling immense sympathy for Gertrude here. Or maybe you're a stoic like Horatio who Hamlet describes as, quote, a man that fortunes, buffets, and rewards has taken with equal thanks, a man who is not passion's slave. Or maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you're Laertes, anxious to to act, to live, to, to live first and think later. He wants to go back to France as soon as the wedding and the funeral are over in the first act. You want to strive, seek, find, and not yield. Most of my life has been spent this way. I remember going to school in Hawaii and coming home for the summer thinking, since who wouldn't, that my life was on hold, and wouldn't actually begin again until I was back in school, always thinking life is elsewhere. 
So maybe at various times in our lives, we are several of these. We go in and out of these roles. To quote another Shakespeare play, a man in his time plays many parts. But after all the costumes come off, who is the actor behind all the characters? Who's there? Well, maybe you're Hamlet. Who is Hamlet? Ophelia describes him like this, Oh, what a noble mind is here o'erthrown. And at the end of the play, Horatio says of him, Now cracks a noble heart. William Hazlitt, the great romantic essayist, wrote, It is we who are Hamlet. And I think that we are in the sense that each of us represents a kind of cracked nobility, or a nobility overthrown. Hamlet describes the human creature like this, What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason! How infinite in faculty! In form and moving, how express and admirable! In action, how like an angel! In apprehension, how like a god! The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals! And yet, to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Like the Psalms say, we are a little lower than the angels, and yet we are no more than dust. I heard a story once, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, about this Israeli prime minister who used to keep two slips of paper in his pocket, one on the left and one on the right, one of which said, I am the dust of the earth. And the other slip of paper said, for me this world was made. And he would reach into his pocket at different times, depending on which message he needed in that moment, if he needed confidence or to be brought back down to earth in some humility. We are all noble minds. Each one of us has infinite potential and is the expectancy and rose of the fair state, as Ophelia describes Hamlet. But on the other hand, this potential feels immensely fragile and is so rarely developed fully. As Hamlet says, each of us can smile and smile and be a villain. And as he says elsewhere, Use every man after his dessert, and who would scape whipping? So one answer to this question, who's there, is a bundle of paradoxes. And because we are a bundle of paradoxes, we can spend so much of our lives feeling immensely lost. Maybe you've contemplated suicide, or maybe someone that you know has, because the world can so often seem stale, flat, and unprofitable. Maybe, like I have been, you are a student who has come home to a dead parent, something that happened to Hamlet, and something that happened to me twice. Or you are a very mean son who is reacting badly to a parent thinking about remarrying, something that happened to me once, just like Hamlet. How is it that we have to make choices without having any idea how, or without full information? How can it be that we have to endure the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and have no idea why? How is it that we have to bounce back and forth between feeling Nothing like Hercules in one minute, as Hamlet says, no more like my father than I to Hercules. And then that very evening, feel ready to wrestle Hercules himself, as Hamlet says when he tells Horatio that he will follow the ghost. In other words, how come whatever strength we have isn't stable? How is it that a modern, enlightened, educated human being, whether living in Denmark hundreds of years ago or now in 2021, how is it that we still have no idea how to live or what is true? We get an idea or come under the influence of this or that person, and like Hamlet following the ghost, can't rely on anything or anyone. As he's following the ghost, he says to it, Are you a spirit of health or goblin damned? He doesn't know. When the players come to Elsinore, this this traveling acting group, Hamlet begs them to recite this bit of a play about this Trojan hero named Pyrrhus, taking violent action against Priam, against those who have offended him. And... It's easy to see why Hamlet asks this to be performed, because he's in the exact same situation. 
But we might ask, is this how we should live, like a hero of antiquity, basing our worth on our strength or our accomplishments, on our bravery and courage? I think, why not? This is a noble way to live. But then we read the New Testament, we think maybe there's an opposite and equally good way to live. Turn the other cheek, reject violence, lay down our lives in order to save them. Should Hamlet be Horatio or Laertes? A stoic, immovable, unattached rock? Or a person who embraces his passions and follows his whims? Like us, Hamlet has no idea if life is best viewed from a stoic, pagan, this-world-is-it lens, or, or rather from a this-world-denying Christian lens that renounces earth in favor of the world to come. Hamlet and Shakespeare is living in a world that has no stable collective religious categories, and so are we. Exactly what was happening to Shakespeare and to Hamlet is happening to us. I think one reason we're told the specific school that Hamlet went to, at Wittenberg, is that we can make the connection between this play and Martin Luther, who also went to Wittenberg. It's not just Hamlet's noble heart that is cracked. It's the very foundation of, of a culture, of a religion, of a sensibility that is being shaken and reformed and totally upended. Of course, this isn't always a bad thing. Just think of the scene of Ophelia's burial. This makes it clear that sometimes the systems and foundations that give a society stability get corrupted and need to be replaced. Laertes is right to be outraged at these dogmatic and very uncompassionate rules about suicide that mean Ophelia can't get a full and proper Christian burial. So sometimes the foundation stones have to be dug up because they're broken, but if so, they have to be replaced, or else the architecture of the society that was built on them will crumble. False and much lesser sources of meaning will come in to take their place, like the religious wars that came as a result of the Reformation, or in our day, tribal allegiance to political party, neither of which is meaningful enough to satisfy our deepest spiritual needs or anchor a civilization in the way that most religions have. Nietzsche diagnosed this problem a long time ago, giving the very horrified pronouncement that God was already dead and had been for some time, at least perhaps since the Renaissance when this play was written. Claire and I recently read Dante, so he's been on my mind a lot recently, and if you think about Dante as a transitional figure, he could be the last author to posit a unified and collective vision of meaning. Of course, this risks oversimplifying things, but this medieval view of the world has everything in its place. There is a hierarchy with God and angels and saints and kings on the top, and peasants and sinners at the bottom. This comes with all of the evils of hierarchy, of course, but it also comes with immense stability. People know where they stand. They know where they're going. They know what they could become. They know what's possible. The universe makes sense. And the Renaissance is, in part, a, a total fracturing of that vision. Just think about um, da Vinci's drawings of the Vitruvian man or of babies in the womb. You know, this is the era in which the scientific method is born. Other former pre-Christian ways of being in the world are rediscovered. Greco-Roman ways, you know. Think about Machiavelli. Machiavelli doesn't talk about what is right or, wa right or wrong or, or what God wants. Instead, he starts talking about human psychology and how human they want. In other words, God isn't yet dead, but this is the moment in which he contracts his fatal disease. Everything becomes subject to question and doubt. And in addition to his sheer genius, this is one reason why Shakespeare's plays are so interesting, and why they couldn't be more relevant to our present day. Think about the tsunami of doubt we have been living in, even just during the past decade, even just during the past year. 
Social media lets people perform in ways that have no basis in reality. And news channels going 24-7 stop reporting the news and have to fill airtime with partisan opinion. And the validity of elections and of democracy itself is put into question. Facts get demoted to alternative facts. Basic common-sense realities go out the window. We can't agree on what gender is, if vaccination science is real. People have no idea what's true or who who to trust. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark, in other words. There is no central unifying purpose of life either for Hamlet or his country. Just think about the play and ask yourself, what are any of these characters living for in the ultimate sense? What is the basis of their value system or moral code? The mind draws blanks. It seems they don't really have one. It's quite Machiavellian. Or like something out of the lives of the Borgias. We'll poison him so that they don't poison us first. Backroom scheming, spying, espionage. This is what happens if there is no transcendent purpose that unifies a culture. But this lack of a transcendent purpose has individual repercussions as well. If you if you have a transcendent purpose, pain won't feel like pain. It will feel like a necessary part of the path. Or a small price to pay for a noble destination, but... Without such a purpose, pain feels pointless. This is what makes it pain. Carl Jung wrote, quote, Meaning makes a great many things endurable, perhaps everything. And all you have to do is think about exercise as an example of this. But without such a source of meaning, Hamlet sees himself as having no inherent purpose, and the world as a pointless mess. How stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Meaning is dead, and so Hamlet thinks he might as well be too. When the stable and communal religious center of a society crumbles into a heap of broken images, to quote Eliot, what do we do? Well, we swing back and forth between alienation and inflation, or mania and depression, or violence and virtue. And actually, only in this context can the question, who's there, make any sense at all. Despite our common humanity, such a question, who's there, would have probably been very confusing to a classical Roman or a medieval Christian or any society whose main unifying myth has not yet crumbled, there was enough communal stability and individual certainty that this question never would have arisen. But when all idols get smashed, and when God draws that fatal fever, when modern science reveals to us things about ourselves we can't comprehend, we have every reason to wonder, who's there? Who's really there? I think this could be one reason why the soliloquy becomes such a potent structural tool for Shakespeare and his contemporaries because it's a very revealing medium to explore what we are like when when left alone. Or maybe better to say, when, when left to our own devices. Hamlet starts his second soliloquy saying, Now I am alone. <laughs> Which always makes me wonder, but, but is he? But are you? Think of closing the door, being totally alone. <laughs> are you yourself? Are you your true authentic self in the bathroom? My wife once recently <laughs> embarrassed me by telling me she could hear me talking to myself in the bathroom. <laughs> it was I was quite embarrassed by this, because it revealed to me that even then I'm performing. F- for me, I have this like fracture in my mind, and even then there are things that I can't explain to myself and so try to, you know? The, you know, the fact that I talk to myself is very interesting because it suggests that what solitude has, has to reveal to me is this inner fracturing that I see writ large throughout society. In Romans, you know, we, we see Paul writing, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And both the player king in the play within a play called The Mousetrap and Claudius himself echo this sentiment. The player king says, you know, 
remember his his wife his the queen says i'll never remarry after you're dead and he says to her in response don't say that you don't know what's in control of your wishes or desires you, you maybe you'll change your mind don't make promises you can't keep he says our wills and fates do so contrary run that our devices still are overthrown our thoughts are ours their ends none of our own how is it possible that we are not in control of who we are or how we act? If Hamlet knows what to do and has opportunities to do it and is justified in doing it, why can't he do it? He sees the player's eyes brimming with tears for a fictional character, for Hecuba, and Hamlet asks, who is he to Hecuba or Hecuba to him? Why can't Hamlet act in the way he wants to? I once made a goal of trying to read for French in 20 minutes every day. I have, I have the time. I can do it. I have the desire to do it, I want to do it, but I'm not doing it, because I'm lazy. This is a total mystery to me. Interrogate any action, and it immediately starts to become a complete mystery. When I do the dishes, for example, part of it is altruism, I suppose, because I want my family to have a kitchen that doesn't depress them with its mess, but part of its desire is to be seen doing the dishes. <laughs> you know, to be seen as a, as a good husband and father. And if I had a nickel for every time especially in my youth, I've attempted to be seen reading a book, an especially sophisticated and hefty book. You know, I'd be a very rich man. I also wasn't faking interest in these books. I wanted to read them. So it's a very blurry line. Where does the mask end? The suits and trappings, as Hamlet says, and the true face begin. Who's there? Person, this word person in English comes from the Greek word persona, which you can divide into two parts, per and sona. Per means through, and sona means sound. So it means that through which sound moves. It has this etymology because this word persona is the word that Greek actors used to describe the masks that they wore, because they had mouthpieces shaped like little megaphones so that they could project better into an amphitheater. I think this etymology is very revealing. In a way, that's what we are. Someone is wearing us and performing us. We are a role and not the actor. And we can't swap roles, no matter how much we try. When I was a teenager, there was this TV show I really liked, with this character I really liked. I won't say who or what, since this would be too embarrassing to admit. But this character was very charismatic and smart and funny and quote-unquote deep, and had a way of talking and a way of life that I really envied. So I started to copy him, copy the way he dressed and spoke. I parroted his ideas, you know. And it didn't take long for me to realize that none of this was ever going to stick. I couldn't take the mask off of my face and swap it with another mask. I was a different character. I had a role in the play of the universe that was unique and that couldn't be changed. Think about the contrast between Hamlet and Fortinbras, for example. Hamlet admires Fortinbras as a man of action. And at least part of Hamlet wishes he could be Fortinbras, but he can't. And I mean, there are many reasons, obvious ones, but one reason is that Hamlet sees the actions that Fortinbras takes, the great military campaigns, as totally pointless. So even if you want to believe other things or have different opinions or adopt different ideas, you can't really. This is an act four, scene four, when Hamlet leaves the play for a while to let some of the other characters shine, and he delivers his last official soliloquy, part of which goes like this. Examples gross as earth exhort me. Witness this army of such mass and charge led by a delicate and tender prince, whose spirit with divine ambition puffed, 
makes mouths at the invisible event, exposing what is mortal and unsure to all that fortune, death, and danger dare, even for an eggshell. Rightly to be great is not to stir without great argument, but greatly to find quarrel in a straw when honor's at the stake. How stand I then, that have a father killed, a mother stained, excitements of my reason and my blood, and let all sleep, while to my shame I see the imminent death of twenty thousand men that for a fantasy and trick of fame go to their graves like beds, fight for a plot whereon the numbers cannot try the cause, which is not tomb enough and continent to hide the slain. And of course, though paraphrase is always horrible, I suppose my paraphrase of these lines would be that Hamlet sees two ways of being in the world at this point in the play. At this point in the play, option A would be do nothing, submit to fate, be pigeon-livered and let the universe, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, stomp all over you. Or option B, strive, seek, find, and not yield, be as hard-working and courageous as Fortinbras, and the fruits of your labors will be, here's the surprise, eggshells, scraps, trash, a plot of land that isn't worth fighting for. So option A, don't try and get nothing, or option B, try really, really hard and get basically nothing. This describes so much of modern life to me, and I have spent my share of time bouncing back and forth between these two categories. I think everyone does. Let the weight of the dishes and the chores and the horrible neighbors and the traffic jams and familial strife and the pain and death of a loved one fall on you like a ton of bricks and keep you down. Or fight back against all of this and maybe at best make the situation 4% better. It's easy to see life this way, to feel trapped like this. This is what Hamlet means when he says, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or, so you can suffer life, or to take arms against a sea of troubles. So much irony in this line, because you can't fight against a sea. I mean, you can, but you will absolutely not win. You will make no dent at all in the sea of troubles. What do we do if option A is fatalism and option B is failure? Well, Hamlet goes away for a while and (laughs) gets captured by pirates and has certain thoughts or experiences. Who knows what happens? And he comes back I think, not perfect by any means, but noticeably changed. So let's ask for a while whether this aborted trip to England and whatever else has happened on that pirate ship has given him any third or maybe better way of facing the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and has given him a way out of this trap of fatalism on the one hand and failure on the other. This brings us to Act 5, Scene 1. Why do I think nothing written in any language has ever surpassed this scene? I won't even try to answer that question, but for once I'm speaking not hyperbolically. Its miraculousness cannot be reduced to any answer or series of answers. You know, what is the taste of a mango and why is it so good? Language fails. You just have to eat the piece of fruit for yourself. So just read this scene or watch it performed well and perceive it and in the perception of it you will feel its full power, and you won't need to ask why. These two gravediggers start to talk about suicide and ask in what ways we can be responsible for our own deaths. You know, if the water comes to you, because they're digging Ophelia's grave, so they ask, if the water comes to you, you're not responsible, but if you go to the water and willingly drown yourself, then you are, and you won't quote-unquote deserve a Christian burial. This takes us back to Martin Luther. 
and the very live questions of Shakespeare's day and of ours. Are we saved by works or grace? If by works, aren't we all damned? Like Hamlet said, treat every man according to his deserts, or as he deserves, and who will escape whipping? But if we're saved by grace, what need is there to act well? Anyway, as these gravediggers chat, Hamlet and Horatio eavesdrop. And as the gravedigger is emptying this old grave so that it can be used for Ophelia, Hamlet watches and is rather incensed at the irreverence and nonchalance with which the gravedigger is treating the bones. He asks Horatio how the gravedigger can do this so casually, and Horatio says, quote, Custom hath made it in him a property of easiness. I really love this moment because it's healthy to think about death. You know, our entire culture tries with all of its strength to suppress death. In North America, and in Europe at least, we've created societies in which death is totally covered up. It can be disturbing at first for a person not used to it, but, you know, the practice of memento mori is not a depressing way to live. You know, for example, I have only so many more moments with my daughter. When is the last time that, I mean, she's seven right now. So sometimes I ask myself, when is the last time she'll sit in my lap? She still does. She's getting pretty big. And I don't know the answer to that question. Any time could be the last time. And I think being hyper-conscious of the, this finitude can make every moment like this incredibly precious. You know, the great contemporary of Shakespeare, Montaigne, the French essayist, wrote in his essay called That to Philosophize is to Learn How to Die, he wrote this, these few sentences, which I really love. There is no place on earth where death cannot find us. Even if we constantly twist our heads about in all directions as in a dubious and suspect land, men come and they go, and they trot and they dance, and never a word about death, all well and good. Yet when death does come, to them, to their wives, their children, their friends, catching them unawares and unprepared, then what storms of passion overwhelm them, what cries of fury, what despair. To begin depriving death of its greatest advantage over us, let us adopt a way clean contrary to that common one. Let us deprive death of its strangeness. Let us frequent it. Let us get used to it. Let us have nothing more often in mind than death. So we do not know where death awaits us. So let us wait for it everywhere. To practice death is to practice freedom. A man who has learned how to die has unlearned how to be a slave. I think the gravedigger has this wisdom. As Horatio says, custom. Um, this is a customary practice for him to dig graves. He's been doing it for many years. Hamlet is maybe on the verge of getting this wisdom. I love that the gravedigger is the only character in the play who is as smart, and maybe smarter than Hamlet, who can outwit Hamlet. In the verbal jousts they have, the gravedigger always wins. You know, for example, Hamlet says, What man dost thou dig for? The gravedigger says, For no man, sir. What woman, then? For none neither. Hamlet, who is to be buried in't? The gravedigger says, One that was a woman, sir, but rest her soul, she's dead. <laughs> Hamlet admits defeat here in this little verbal joust. He says, How absolute the knave is, we must speak by the card, or equivocation will undo us. So this life in the dirt, facing death every day, has given the gravedigger a source of wisdom, I think. I know what you're thinking. Hamlet has certainly thought a lot about death. So what's the difference? Well, I think for Hamlet, it's all conceptual up till now. He lives in the palace. The gravedigger touches bones every day, spends his days standing in literal graves. It's not an abstraction like it is for the prince. This is why the image of 
Hamlet holding Yorick's skull is perhaps the most iconic image in all of Shakespeare. Hamlet, for the first time it seems, is coming face to face with death, holding up the dead skull of Yorick and staring death in the face, seeing the skull beneath the face, literally. Hamlet says, let me see, and takes the skull, and then says, alas, poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio. A fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. He hath borne me on his back a thousand times, and now how abhorred in my imagination it is. My gorge rises at it. Here hung those lips that I have kissed I know not how oft. Where be your gibes now, your gambles, your songs, your flashes of merriment that were wont to set the table in a roar? Not one now to mock your own grinning. Quite chapfallen. Now get you to my lady's chamber, and tell her, let her paint an inch thick. To this favor she must come. Make her laugh at that. Prithee, Horatio, tell me one thing. Horatio says, what's that, my lord? Dost thou think Alexander looked to this fashion in the earth? Horatio says, even so. Hamlet, and smelled so? Horatio, even so, my lord. Hamlet says, to what base uses we may return, Horatio? Why may not imagination trace the noble dust of Alexander till he find it stopping a bunghole? Horatio kind of objects to this and says, "'Twere to consider too curiously to consider so. This is a strange thought, in other words. Hamlet, no faith, not a jot, but to follow him thither with modesty enough, and likelihood to lead it as thus. Alexander died. Alexander was buried. Alexander returneth into dust, the dust is earth. Of earth we make loam, and why of that loam whereto he was converted might they not stop a beer barrel?' Imperious Caesar, dead and turned to clay, might stop a hole to keep the wind away. Oh, that that earth which kept the world in awe should patch a wall to expel the winter flaw. Again, I could never fully express why I love this so much. Its beauty and power are inexpressible, I think. And I actually depend on the full context of the play. Even in isolation, their full power doesn't actually arise. But one small slice of this mystery is how ambivalent this passage is. You know that illustration called the rabbit-duck illusion. You look at it one way, you see the, the head of a duck. You look at it another way, you see the head of a rabbit. This and many, many great scenes in Shakespeare work in the same way. Is this a lament that we all turn to dust? Or is it a consolation? Does it comfort Hamlet to know that everything is dirt? Or does it depress him? Does it comfort you, or does it depress you? The Zen Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh teaches us about the transformation of a cloud. He says, you know, people fall in love with clouds, and then the cloud disappears, and you might think, oh, where is my cloud? And you might feel brokenhearted that your cloud is not there anymore. But he teaches us that the cloud hasn't died. It has just changed form. It's become rain, which has filled a well, which you've drawn water from for your tea, which you are now drinking. So you can drink your cloud, and the cloud can never die, and the cloud can become a part of you. This is very personal to me. Both of my parents are dead. 
And thinking like this is for me a source of consolation in some ways. Hamlet asks, where are your gibes now, your gambles, your songs, your flashes of merriment that were wont to set the table in a roar? And I think the answer to this question is obvious. Those jokes of Yorick the clown that Hamlet loves so much are inside of Hamlet. They have not disappeared. Those memories are in him and have composed him, and he takes them with him wherever he goes. He can't escape them. My parents physically compose every cell in my body, but also most of the memories in my mind. I think I've mentioned this in a recent podcast, but um, recently one of my daughter's rabbits died. We have three rabbits, and one of them died. The rabbit's name was Mozart. And so at the funeral, I tried to channel this idea. We buried it in the, in the, in the backyard by a fence, and on the fence, we have these grapevines growing. We don't really eat the grapes, but the birds sometimes do. So I was thinking about this moment and trying to find something to say at this rabbit funeral. I was quite, you know, saddened by the death of this rabbit. And of course, my daughter was heartbroken. What I said was, I don't know of any consolation to my daughter, but I said, you know, this rabbit will turn back to earth and these grapevines will put its roots down into that earth and use those nutrients to make grapes, which the birds will come and eat, and the birds will turn the nutrients of those grapes into their own flesh, into their wings, that they will use to fly around our yard. So, in a few years, ten years, I don't know how long this process is, could look up into the sky and see our rabbit flying through the sky. <laughs> Again, did this comfort her? I don't know. Should this comfort her? I also don't know that. It's a very tricky thing, this rabbit-duck illusion. No pun intended, I suppose. The good news is that everything changes. But the bad news is that everything changes. Some have a predisposition to see the glass as half empty and some as half full. And for the first four acts of this play, I think we know onto which side of this debate Hamlet falls. He more or less breaks the scales of pessimism. Which to me is why any development or reversal or evolution in this pessimism, any step forward into consolation or hope, no matter how slight, is, more, is, is even more significant and affirming. I think I see evidence here of Hamlet seeing what matters and what doesn't. When he's watching the gravedigger knock the skulls around irreverently, Hamlet says, this, this skull might have belonged to a lawyer, and then says, where be his quiddities now, his quillets, his cases, his tenures, his tricks? These things we thought mattered don't. Think of the billion-dollar cosmetic industry. We think having this shade of lip or this contour of cheek or this shade of, I don't know, <laughs> eyelash matters. But it doesn't. Hamlet says, get you to my lady's chamber and tell her, let her paint an inch thick. To this favor she must come. There's nothing evil about wearing makeup, of course, but it is a kind of society-wide lie. We're covering up the truth. It's another way to deny death. We're covering up the truth of time and aging, and eventually of death itself. It's moral progress, and potentially a source of great consolation to see what matters and what doesn't matter, to get one's priorities straight. So maybe the answer to the question, who's there, is, you know, like Hamlet realizes in the scene, just a pile of carbon and hydrogen and calcium just base uses, as he says. Maybe Claudius is right in Act 1 to say that death, the death of fathers, is nature's common theme, that we're all just atoms in a void or links in a chain. 
seeing life from this vantage point can help us keep our priorities straight and not be so attached to certain forms. And to know that if everything changes, our grief will change, t- our grief will also change too. Anyway, Ophelia's funeral procession arrives, and after a moment of eavesdropping, Hamlet steps forward and says, It is I, Hamlet the Dane. I think this is a crucial moment in the play, because he's assuming the role of king. The Dane is the title that the monarch gets to refer to himself as, the Dane, the archetypal Dane, yeah? So yes, everyone might be acting. We might all be wearing masks. Almost every scene of this play has involved some kind of pretending or performance or espionage or spying. Every scene has, in a way, been a play within a play. Okay, Ophelia, you go there, pretend to be passing through this hall coincidentally, and we'll watch how Hamlet interacts with you, or Polonius paying Ronaldo to go spy on Laertes. So we could lament the lack of authenticity, especially now in social media days, and think, oh, they're all just such phonies and pretenders. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we could lament this fact in us as well. Everyone is posturing and deceitful. I like this little story about um, the 19th century architect John Allen, who put over a door of a building in Scotland this, this inscription, Whate'er thou art, act well thy part. It's a very Shakespearean sentiment. No, I'm not that guy from that TV show I liked. I'm me. That's my part. That's the part that was written for me in this play called Life. To act it badly would be to try to adopt the manners of someone else. So yes, I pretend to be altruistic while washing the dishes. I pretend to be a father who isn't annoyed. And when I teach, I pretend to know things. When I meet a new person, I pretend and say something I don't fully mean. I say it's nice to meet you. Sometimes pretending is good, or at least it's enough, or at least the only other choices would be catastrophic. Maybe it's all an act, but act it well. Act it well. It is I, Hamlet the Dane. Hamlet says, okay, if this is what I am, let me adopt it. If this is my costume, if this is my role, I will accept it. Speaking of pretending, I love how Laertes and Hamlet wrestle in the grave together and have a kind of grief contest. You know, what would you do? Is your grief bigger than mine? Mine is so big I'd eat a crocodile, Hamlet says. So he's still arrogant and impulsive and violent. Yes, Hamlet has come back with, I think, a little bit more perspective, a bit of wisdom, but he's by no means perfect. This mirrors a moment at the end of the Iliad where Achilles very graciously unclenches and tempers his murderous rage and has mercy on Priam and gives Priam back the body of his son Hector. And then Priam says, okay, but can I have it now, quickly, without waiting? And Achilles gets instantly mad and says, don't try my patience. All moral progress is slow and zigzaggy. Hamlet has had some kind of insights, some kind of maturity, some kind of growth. But any moral improvement could just reveal new territory in our soul that needs work. The scene shifts, and we're back in the castle, and are presented with maybe the most important moment in the play, if you ask me. There's this duel that's been set up between Laertes and Hamlet. It's a playful duel, or so it would seem. And Hamlet is a tiny, tiny bit worried about losing. And so Horatio says to him, if your mind dislike anything, obey it. I will forestall their repair hither and say you are not fit, so I can stall for you and we can do this some other time. To which Hamlet replies, not a whit. We defy augury. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. 
referring to his death. If my death be now, it is not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Since no man has aught of what he leaves, what is't to leave betimes? Let be. And since this is an explicit and direct answer to the most famous moment in the play, to be or not to be, Hamlet asks himself. Here he's announcing his chosen answer, let be. I think it's really worth lingering over. Let's pause and ask ourselves, what, what is the cause of tragedy? How would the play answer this question? Well, I suppose there could be, there could be at least three answers, but here are three. Tragedy comes from people acting badly. That's one answer that gets some attention in this play. In the very first act, before Hamlet even meets the ghost, he's kind of reciting what he's learned at Wittenberg from Aristotle about hamartia, or fatal flaw. And he says, you know, there are some men who have this fatal flaw, no matter how, how virtuous they are otherwise. He says, but they shall, in the general censure, take corruption from that particular fault. So tragedy is the result of people acting badly. They have this fatal flaw, they make a wrong choice, a stupid act, and the consequence is grief and destruction and sorrow. That's the first hypothesis. The second hypothesis the play provides is tragedy comes because of fate or fortune. If you just pull up the full text of this play and then control F search for fortune, you see this word coming up everywhere. For example, when Hamlet meets Rosencrantz and Guildenstern for the first time, he asks, oh, how have you been? Oh, neither good nor bad. We're not fortune's hat or the sole of her feet. We're somewhere in her middle parts, and they make this kind of dirty joke. So there's this idea that our lives are, are totally controlled by external forces known as fate or fortune, and nothing we do can change them in any way. So tragedy, what is the cause of tragedy? <laughs> it's baked into the universe. It can't be unwritten. A third potential answer that the play provides is that tragedy become is that tragedy comes because it's what God wants. It's the will of heaven. Just after Hamlet stabs Polonius, he says this very strange thing. He says, but heaven hath pleased it so to punish me with this and this with me, that I must be their scourge and minister. It's heaven's will that I stabbed Polonius and that Polonius was stabbed by me. I have God wants me to be his scourge and minister. And then when he's explaining to Horatio how and why he killed, how and why he sent Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to their deaths, he says, the pirates came and they gave me an opportunity. And I read the letter that was sent with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern announcing that I was to be put to death. And I wrote a false letter. And it just so happened that I had my father's signet ring that would formally seal this letter as a decree from the monarch. What a coincidence that was. These, All of these coincidences must have been from God, he says. This is providence. Hence, his idea, there's special providence in the fall of a sparrow. So a trick question I could ask is, which of these proposals is correct? Tragedy comes from fatal flaws, tragedy is baked into fortune, or tragedy is what God wants? Well, of course, all of them in a way are correct. But do these theories, or does that answer, help us in any practical way in shouldering the burdens of life? Hamlet, I think, has sensed this and has come to what I think is an immensely wise realization. The readiness is all. Let be. You know, and to tease out what, what makes this so wise, I think, just pick your, pick 
Pick a choice that you've struggled making recently. This play is full of people trying to make hard choices about life. All of these questions that they ask, for example, to what issue will this come, or whither whither wilt thou lead me, or how may we try it further? Do you know me, my lord? What is the matter, my lord? Our lives are plagued by similar questions, you know? What should my major be, or my career? Should I take this job or that job? Whom should I marry? How much of my homework should I do today? What should I eat? What should I not eat? How much exercise can I afford to do or not do? Is this white lie acceptable? How much TV should I let my kids watch? You know, I'm thinking lately about what will happen if I don't repair the rain gutters on my house and let the water pool near the foundation for one more year. In the context of this choice or that dilemma, you can ask yourself what it means to say that the readiness is all. That you should let be, let go. There are things, many things, important things, outside our knowledge and outside our control. Since they are outside our knowledge and control, there's only one skillful and healthy way of reacting to them. You can't know in advance. You can't know in advance if picking that job or this one is quote-unquote the right thing. You weigh the evidence. You try to make a rational choice. But even if you spend months trying to figure out who to marry, eventually you have to make a leap of faith. Are you a spirit of health or a goblin damned? I don't know. You know, we always have to act with imperfect or incomplete knowledge. This is where we have to let go. Let go of all desire for certainty, cravings, attachments, expectations, assumptions, demands. Let it all go. And just be ready. Be ready for whatever comes. Hamlet has clearly been reading the Bible. You know, this moment of providence being in the fall of a sparrow is a reference to uh, Matthew chapter 10. And later in that same chapter, we read verses that I think are really applicable here. I'd like to read them. This is starting around verse 25-ish, King James Version. Christ says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? Skipping ahead a bit, therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Very strange advice. Think, take no thought for the morrow? Really? Shouldn't I take out life insurance? Shouldn't I plan this lesson? Shouldn't I... (laughs) Brush my kids' teeth so that they don't get cavities tomorrow? Take no thought for the morrow, really? Think, well, yes, really, let be. Do what you think you should do, so that tomorrow isn't totally ruinous, but then stop thinking about it. Let it be. Achilles, at the end of the Iliad, near the end, says, We will all die. Why all this fuss about it? And I love what Emerson says, you know, we, we cannot spend the day in explanation. And part of what this play is, is a, is a man, Hamlet, who has spent four acts trying to explain to himself what he is and what he should do, second guess, third guess, fourth guess himself, spending the day in explanation, and not actually getting on with the business of living. I really fully believe in the insight and the wisdom of this moment, but since this is Shakespeare, I can see a, a duck lurking in this rabbit, or a rabbit lurking in this duck. It's a very valid reading to see this moment not as moral progress or spiritual insight, but just the same old Hamlet. The very first thing that he expressed in his very first soliloquy 
the moment he was on stage alone, was a desire to kill himself, or to die at least. So we are very justified in asking, is this just a new way to get to kill himself without any of the Christian guilt? It doesn't matter if for, if Laertes will beat me. I'm going to die eventually. It might as well be now. If it's not now, it'll be later. Is this kind of fatalism disguised as Christian wisdom? Remember that this comes after the gravedigging scene in which the gravedigger proposes just such a doctrinal escape hatch. You know, if the flood comes to you and drowns you, you aren't guilty of your own death. So is this Hamlet trying to commit suicide without being guilty of committing suicide? I don't think we can know this, really. There is and always will be something un- unplumbable about Hamlet, something contradictory and out of our grasp, which is exactly what makes him so human. To try to pin him down is exactly what the play warns us against. He says, you would play upon me. You would seem to know my stops, He's using the image of a recorder here, a pipe with holes in it. You would pluck out the heart of my mystery. You would sound me from my lowest note to the top of my compass. And I think the insight of this play is that this is the condition we're all in in relation to ourselves. We lack insight into ourselves and cannot sound ourselves from the lowest note to the top. We are instruments that either we don't know how to play, or that we, in fact, aren't playing, but are being played by someone else. To thine own self be true, Polonius says. I don't know what this means. Why do I do things I know I shouldn't, and do things and don't do things I know I should, and multiple times a day. Who's there? Who's there? I love this joke that T.S. Eliot tells about cats. He says that cats have three names. The first is the name that everyone knows them by. The second is the name that only a few close friends know them by. And the third is the name, the inner secret name, that only the cat knows. (laughs) This might be true for cats, but... Most humans, I suspect, live their lives feeling like strangers to themselves. I want to skip ahead a little bit and go to the very, very, very end of the play. Here are the last three lines, spoken by Fortinbras, who is describing the corpses with which by now the stage is strewn. He says, Take up the bodies. Such a sight as this becomes the field, but here shows much amiss. Go. Bid the soldiers shoot. I love this moment because... The play seems to conclude with a rhyming couplet, which is the normal custom. But then another incomplete line is snuck onto the very end. Go, bid the soldier shoot. It's a half line, and it kind of muddies the rhyme. It muddies the closure that the perfect rhyme would have given us. This and a miss. So why do this? Remember how the play starts by announcing one of the central thematic questions. Who's there? So is there something similarly significant to make out of this very last half-line? I was thinking about this, and one idea that came to my mind is that the play is like life, and like life, it cannot be tied up by a nice pretty bow of a rhyming couplet. It will leak and brim over any container, or any form that tries to sum it up. The tragedy of the play is over, but the play suggests here at the end that the tragedy of life actually never ends. We live it every day. And even the play, the plot of the play seems to corroborate this. We start kind of where we started, with a new king and a funeral, and with soldiers shooting, which is a very ominous and unsettling omen. We have, I know, skipped the actual duel between Hamlet and Laertes, and the intricate Borgia-like plot of all the various poisonings. Two main questions come to my mind as I read this last scene. As he's dying, Laertes says several times that all of this is just. 
He says, oh, I am justly killed with mine own treachery. And he says, he is justly served, referring to Claudius. It is a poison tempered by himself. And he says to Hamlet, exchange forgiveness with me. Mine and my father's death come not upon thee, nor thine on me. It's a very strange series of moments here at the very end. Is the ending of this play really just? Is this what justice looks like? That's my first question that comes to my mind. The second is, in what way is Hamlet actually noble? This is when Horatio utters his little eulogy, now cracks a noble heart. Good night, sweet prince, and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. So these are my two questions. Is this justice? And what is noble about Hamlet? Except, I'm not going to attempt any answers to these questions, because the final point I want to make is that the point is the questions, and not really the answers. If you do a Control-F search in a full text of the play, you learn that there are 428 question marks in the play, asking questions like, who's knight? Asking questions like, who's there? Or, has this thing appeared again tonight? Looks it not like the king? Is not this something more than fantasy? Who is't that can inform me? Etc., etc., etc. It's a play of questioning, of uncertainty, people expressing a lack of knowledge, the desire to know. And these very much echo questions that we have about our own lives. You know, what should my major be? Should I, if my daughter is dating a man I don't really like, what should I do? Is this white lie acceptable? But how many of life's most urgent questions can actually be definitively answered? How long should I let my daughter cry over her dead bunny? Was it right to take the job in Philadelphia and not the job in San Antonio? We, we can't know. Hamlet praises two people for the exact opposite reasons. He praises Horatio for being as solid as a rock, for not being passion slave, unmoved by emotions, but he praises the actor for being able to weep over a fictional character, for being passionate and emotionally sensitive. Which is best? Which way of life is best? Some things, many things, many really, really important things, we can't know. So in conclusion, I would like to channel Rilke and Keats on this topic. Rilke says in the letters to a young poet, quote, Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms, and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything, live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. And Keats, in a moment of praising specifically Shakespeare himself, said, And at once it struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean negative capability. That is, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Can we, quote-unquote, understand Hamlet the person, or Hamlet the play? Can we understand Can we understand ourselves, I mean fully? Who's there? Hamlet's last words are, the rest is silence. This is, this is in some ways an appropriate answer to the question, who's there? We can't know. So, and of course I am preaching to myself here, maybe I should stop trying to control everything. Or, 
And I know this sounds like a strange thing to say coming from a person with a job at a university, but maybe I should stop trying to understand everything. I want to leave you with what I think are the four best bits of the play. The first is what Hamlet says to Horatio. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. We are bigger than ourselves and more complex than we could fully fathom. The second little moment I love so much in the play is when Ophelia says, we know what we are, but know not what we may be. And because so much is mysterious to us, we don't know what we might be, what we, what we might be now, and what we may become in the future. And since there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy, I think the wisest position to fall back on is acknowledging that the readiness is all and that we should just let be, which are number three and four. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. We know what we are, but know not what we may be. The readiness is all, and let be. And to quote Forrest Gump, that's pretty much all I have to say about that. Except, of course, it's not. (laughs) Think of how much we skipped over most of the play, the vast majority of the play. I tell my students, even after spending three, three, four, five weeks on a play like this, you haven't, quote-unquote, done Hamlet. You won't ever be done with it. There's only rereading. There's no such thing as reading, only rereading. So if I, if I have anything to teach as a teacher, I'm not sure I do, it would be reducible to a single word, reread. Come back to Hamlet again and again in many different parts of your life, and it will be constantly new. Well, that's it for now. Not sure what's coming next, but in the meantime, happy reading.